Good to have you all with us today. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, um, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Jonah. Okay, the book of Jonah. It's in the Old Testament, the book of Jonah. If you don't, you're welcome to take one of the books in front of you, one of the Bibles under the seat pockets in front of you. We do have Bibles in the NIV translation. Um, underneath. You can grab one of those if you like. Um, If you don't, you can just follow along because we have the verses on the slides behind me or in front of you as well. Um, We are starting our next series of Bible engagement. If you've been a part of our church for any period of time over the last number of months, you know that we've been doing this Bible engagement project, not to teach people the Bible, but to show people how God's word actually is relevant and applicable to our lives. Anybody can know the Bible. Anyone can know if I like to say the word of God, but it doesn't mean you know the God of the word. Knowing the word of God says you've committed things to your memory, that you understand words, you've memorized scriptures. There are a lot of religious leaders past, present, that have religiously memorized things. Just because they know the word of God doesn't mean they know the God of the word. There's a difference. I was talking to someone this week, and I was saying you could read every biographical or autobiographical book about a world leader who is living to this day and learn everything about them, where they were born, every decision that they've made, everything that was written. And if you walk up to them and you extend your hand and you tell them who you are, they're going to ask you for your name. Why? Because you know nothing about, you, don't, you know who they are, but they don't know who you are. And it works that way with God too. Just because we know about God doesn't mean we actually walk in relationship with God. And Bible engagement has been designed for us to not just teach people the Bible, but it's to help people understand how the Bible is relevant to our lives and how God actually gave us the word of God because it's a message that he's trying to provide relationship and an opportunity for us to be with him in relationship, not just for a moment, but for eternity. And he makes that opportunity available through Jesus Christ. Every one of our... Uh, volumes that we have. We have a different faith verse. We're kicking off a new faith verse today. It's out in the lobby in our giant Etch-A-Sketch. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 7. And it simply says, for we live by believing and not by seeing. We live by believing and not by seeing. There's a word for that and it's on the slide and it's called faith. Sometimes people say seeing is believing, right? Maybe you've heard that before. I'll believe that when I see it. I'm willing to bet nobody in this room was there to witness the crucifixion. I'm willing to bet no one in this room was there to witness the resurrection. And yet 2,000 years later, we're still talking about it. 2,000 years later, people's lives have been changed. The 12 people, or say the 11 plus Paul, who heard the message, were called by Jesus, saw him, experienced the resurrection their lives were completely transformed and they lived the rest of their life proclaiming this news of a resurrected Savior, gave their lives in a way where they died as martyrs. Why? Because they experienced something and they saw it with their physical eyes. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5-7 that understanding faith is not something we can just do in our minds or with our eyes. It's something we have to do in our hearts. It's we have to believe it. And sometimes the way it works with God is we take a step And then we see what God is trying to show us. Many times we can stand with our arms folded or our arms crossed and say, well, until I see that, I won't believe that. But in this world that we live in, true faith is about seeing something with our mind's eye, seeing something in our heart, taking a step. And then when we take a step and we walk in it, we see God. And that happens all the time in our lives. 
If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's not about God. When you show me this, I'm going to do it. No, his word says to walk this way. His word says to have a relationship with him. His word says, here's what I'm calling you to do and how I'm calling you to live. When you walk in that way, he reveals himself to you over and over again. That's the way it works. For we live by believing and not by seeing. One translation says we walk by faith, not by sight. That's our faith verse. Um, I'm going to warn you guys in advance. We've had eight faith verses at this point, and we have not tested any of you to see if you've been memorizing them. We are going to remind you of that over the next couple of weeks, and we're going to see who remembers the verses, uh, and um, maybe, I don't know, maybe there'll be some special gifts in there, you know? Like, maybe you'll get, like, a framed picture of me or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> just kidding. Why is that funny? Let's see. Why is that funny? So anyway, just kidding. Where are we today? So we're at volume six today, session one, okay? Volume six, session one, we are talking about Jonah, okay? And many people have probably heard the story of Jonah. Jonah is this guy in the Old Testament. He was a prophet. And what we probably remember about Jonah is that something really bad happened to him. He got thrown overboard from this boat and this giant fish basically swallowed him up. He was in the fish for three days. God spit him up. And that's a crazy story. That's what a lot of people know about the story. When they think of Jonah, they think about the guy that ran away from God and he went on this boat and he disobeyed God. The story of Jonah is so much more than a story of a guy who ran away and tried to disobey God. It's really actually not the point of the story at all. Jonah is only four chapters. So if you're looking to read an entire book of the Bible and get something out of it, which I believe if you're really listening for it, it can transform and change the way that you see God. This is a great book to start with. What does the story of Jonah actually try to teach us? This is my best shot at trying to consolidate it and put it together. It's simply this. God gives second chances. He shows compassion and mercy to whomever he chooses. God gives second chances. Some of you maybe grew up with you know, old cartoons and veggie tales and understood the book of Jonah was, you know, he is the God of second chances. But that is the absolute truth. The four chapters come together to point to one consistent theme, that God is a God of second chances. He gives second chances. He shows compassion and he shows mercy to whomever he chooses. Notice it doesn't say whomever we choose, whomever he chooses, whomever he thinks, and he reaches out and draws. He's the one that does it and has nothing to do with our understanding of who deserves it and who doesn't deserve it. And because of that, the story of Jonah should rattle our cages a little bit. Because if we meditate on it, just this past week as I've been looking at this and meditating on this and saying, man, this is really hard to understand, I have to be able to take a step back and just say, that's why God is God and I'm not. You know, I was reading this past week and someone was talking about um, how Jonah couldn't have been in a fish. I was reading this, this commentary and they were saying, you know, there's no fish that exists right now, a large fish, a whale that actually you could live in the fish for three days and blah, 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 blah. And I thought about it. I'm like, that's the dumbest commentary. Throw that out. I'm not going to listen to that. Why am I not going to listen to it? Because the Bible is full of things that our minds cannot reconcile. It's like what the writer was basically saying in that is because we have no physical understanding of how that could happen, it may not have actually happened. Well, the Bible also says God spoke the world into existence, right? 
It also said that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was thrown into a fiery furnace, and there weren't three there, there were four. How do you explain that? It says Jesus was raised from the dead. It said Peter walked on water. What explanation do we have for any of these things but God? So, Jonah, God gives second chances. He shows compassion and mercy to whomever he chooses. For me to explain this to you, I need to take a little bit of time and give you a little bit of background before I read Jonah. Because if you don't understand the background or if you've never heard this before, you won't have the same impact. So just bear with me just for a couple of minutes. I'm going to give you like a crash course summary of some history and then track with me as we get ready to read through Jonah today. Okay, Jonah was a prophet, okay? I heard you. I knew someone was going to do it from that song. Jonah was a prophet. Ooh, ooh, right? Jonah was a prophet. Okay? He lived during other prophets. Okay? There were prophets there named Amos and Hosea that also lived at the same time of Jonah. Here's what you need to know. He was a prophet to Israel. Israel was the nation. There were two different nations within Israel. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Okay? The northern kingdom of Israel had ten tribes and the southern kingdom had two. Okay? Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom. Okay? When you look at Israel, it was split into two kingdoms. The, lower, or the southern kingdom only had good kings for the most part. They were good kings. Okay? Uh, and some bad kings, I should say. But the northern kingdom only had bad kings. They only had bad kings. They worshipped other idols. They did things that weren't godly. The northern kingdom was not, a godly, was not led by godly leaders over a long period of time. The southern kingdom, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Jonah was a prophet and he spoke to the northern kingdom. Okay? Now, what was a prophet? Prophets were messengers from God. They would speak the words and the will of God to the people. Jonah's role by God was to speak the will of God to the people in the northern kingdom in Israel. Okay? You with me so far? Okay, all right. It's just simple. I just want to make sure we get to that place. Okay, so he was during the reign of a specific king. Doesn't really matter. His name was Jeroboam. Okay? But here's what you need to know about the king Jeroboam he was the last king of the northern kingdom. Under Jeroboam, Israel, northern Israel, the northern kingdom, saw the greatest outward prosperity since all the days of King Solomon that go back many, many years before that, over 100 years. Israel saw the greatest outward prosperity. Notice I said outward prosperity because here's what happened. Israel was prosperous and wealthy on the outside, and they were morally corrupt on the inside. So the nation enjoyed wealth. They enjoyed economic prosperity. There was all kinds of... um, uh, valuables and all kinds of materialism that was happening in the culture, but that resulted in a culture that thrived on injustice to the poor, injustice to the oppressed, and it was one of the key messages, not just from Jonah, but from one of his contemporaries, his other prophet, the guy's name was Amos. Okay, so I just want to give you an example of just how bad Israel was, because you might hear that and say, well, how bad were they? Amos in chapter 2, 6 through 7, describes it this way. Look with me. He says, The people of Israel have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. This is God speaking through Amos to the northern kingdom, Israel. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample helpless people in the dust and shove the oppressed out of the way. Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. How many of you say amen that the kids are no longer in the room? A little bit of a hint of a history of what's happening, right? Let's fast forward because there's more. Chapter 5, 10 through 12. God says through Amos, how you hate honest judges, how you despise people who tell the truth. You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair 
rent. You get a little bit of a picture of just how evil and corrupt Israel was, though there was a wealth in the nation. There's consequences from that, and God begins to tell them the consequences. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, Therefore, though you build beautiful stone houses, you will never live in them. Though you plant lush vineyards, you will never drink wine from them. For I know the vast number of your sins and the depth of your rebellions. You oppress good people by taking bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Here's what you need to know. Israel was on a collision course with being conquered by an enemy. Because of their sin, because of their unwillingness to repent to God for their sinful ways, the prophets were telling northern Israel, bad stuff's coming to you guys because you refuse to repent and walk in godly ways. God's going to judge you, and he's going to use an enemy that's near you to judge you. They will conquer you, and you're not going to be able to enjoy the things that you have. Here's where it gets really amazing. During the same time Jonah lived, Hosea, The prophet Hosea, remember I said there's Amos and Hosea. They're at the same time, they're living in the general area. Hosea gives this message to the nation of Israel, chapter 11, 5 through 7. Look at this. He says, but since my people refuse to return to me, they will return to Egypt and will be forced to serve Assyria. Just stop there for a second. He's not literally bringing Israel back to Egypt, but when they were in Egypt, what were they? Slaves. So what... Hosea is saying, and God is saying through Hosea, is because of their unwillingness to repent, Israel, the northern kingdom alone, they are not going, they're going to, the people refuse to return to me, they are going to return to Egypt, and they're going to be forced to serve who? Say it with me. Assyria. Assyria was a nation, a large nation, a kingdom at that point, nearby. Verse 6. War will swirl through the cities. Their enemies will crash their gates. They will destroy them, trapping them in their own evil plans. For my people are determined to desert me. They call me the most high, but they don't truly honor me. That's the situation. Now, something I'm just going to briefly say without even going there. There's another prophet in the southern kingdom at that point named Isaiah. Isaiah was saying the same thing to the people in the south, that Israel was going to be overtaken by Assyria because of their disobedience. So do you understand what's going on here? Jonah's living during this time in a prosperous nation that's disobedient to God. God uses the prophets around to say, I'm going to judge you for your actions and your unwillingness to repent, and the nation of Assyria is going to be the ones to take you out. You with me so far? Okay, really important to understand that. That's the situation. Assyria was not a godly nation. Assyria was a pagan nation. Assyria was a nation that did not acknowledge the God of Israel or worship the God of Israel. And the capital of Assyria was Nineveh. Hold that thought. Jonah chapter 1, 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. You would think God telling Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against it would be something Jonah would want to do because there's judgment when people are not not following God, right? Right? But instead, Jonah picks up his stuff, hightails it to Joppa, which is a city on the the shore. He gets in a boat and he goes all the way, well, he heads towards Tarshish. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense to us in today's maps. So here's a map to show you exactly what happened. 
Jonah, he lived in the area near Joppa. That's where Israel was, okay? God says to him, go to Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria, 550 plus miles or 500 miles northeast of where you go and declare a message of judgment upon this nation, upon this city, if they don't repent. Jonah's response is, no stinking way. He gets in a boat and he goes to the farthest possible destination he can get in the known world at that time, which was 2,500 miles, which, by the way, ships didn't travel directly to. They had to follow some of the coastline, so it might have been more like 3,000 plus miles. Can you imagine? In our country... That would be like living here in Pennsylvania, God telling you to do something and going up to New England and you say, I'm going to go to, no, I'm going to California. Did you see what's going on here? Jonah's making a very specific statement to God and his statement is, you're going to do whatever you're going to do and I want nothing to do with it, right? Okay, what happens in this? We're not going to read through all this. He gets in the boat. He starts heading in that direction. There's a great storm that happens. The sailors in the boat are fearful of dying Jonah tells them, because they're trying to figure out what the problem is, they cast lots. Basically, they're basically through, through, through chance trying to figure out what the gods are going to tell them and who's responsible for this, this storm that's going to potentially kill them. Jonah says, well, the lot cast, falls on Jonah, and he says, I know it's me. Let me tell you, I'm being disobedient to my God. The solution for all of this is to throw me off the boat. Throw me off the boat, and your lives will be spared. And with fear and trembling, they throw him off the boat. The storm quiets. Jonah then gets swallowed by a large, huge fish, the Bible says. And in the belly of a great fish, he stays there for three days. In that window of time, in Jonah chapter 2, we're not going to go there, he repents of his disobedience. He talks about how he's in the depths of this grave in this pit. And he acknowledges that God is God, that he was not obedient to God. And even in the midst of his dire problem and his disobedience, God is still with him and can be his salvation. It's a beautiful story of how his mind shifts and how he comes to the place where he's willing to obey obey God. So what happens? The fish spits him up on the dry land, and we get to Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days just to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Stop here just for a moment and just just feel the tension with me if you can. Jonah knows Israel is going to be judged. The prophets speak to Assyria judging Israel, God using Assyria. The capital of Assyria is Nineveh. God tells him to go preach repentance or judgment will come. If the city repents and God spares the city, he uses the city and the people to conquer his own people. You with me? Can you feel the tension in this? Can you feel why Jonah maybe went the wrong way or the opposite way? Look at verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. Then the message got to the king of Nineveh. The message gets to the king of Nineveh and he declares this fast and this response to the entire city that they need to repent so that they're not judged by the God. When, when the king actually asked Jonah, and we're not going to read it here, but when the king asked Jonah, who are you and where, where did you come from? Who do you serve? Basically, who do you serve? He says, I serve the God 
who made the heavens and made the earth. And the king trembled. So what did he do? In chapter 3, 7 through 9, look what the king says. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. That was a form of humility. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion Turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. You see where we are right now? You guys tracking with me on this so far? Can you see the tension? Can you feel the tension a little bit in Jonah's heart? He's going to an evil city that God is going to use should they repent and God forgives them and God releases them or or he relents and doesn't judge them. He'll use these people to take out Jonah's own people and put them into slavery and captivity. This is the the challenge. This is the tension that's going on here. But Jonah was obedient and you'd think because of his obedience, he would have seen God's purpose in all of it and he would be at peace. And this is what I love about the book of Jonah. He wasn't. He's very honest. Look what he says in Jonah chapter 4, 1 through 3. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Verse 3, Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah's pretty ticked off, right? This is what I knew God was going to do. He knew the character of God right from the beginning. You follow what I'm saying? Right from the beginning. My people are going to be taken into captivity. The prophecies are there. Hosea is saying it. Isaiah is saying it in the south. Hosea is saying it here in the north. I know this is going to happen. They're not relenting from their sin. Hey, Jonah. Yes, Lord. I need you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach repentance or else I'm going to destroy the city. I'm sorry. You have the wrong number. Hang up. Calls again. Jonah. Oh, you want me to go? Okay, I'll be right there. Hangs up the phone. Goes to Joppa. I'm going to go the opposite way. Why? Because he knew the character and the nature of Yahweh. And the character and nature of Yahweh is, what did he say? He said, I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. This is so important for us to understand today, church. People can see God from a faraway place as an authoritarian. He just wants to zap people with lightning bolts or he's disinterested in them. He could care less about them or he favors one nation of people over another nation of people. People are, I mean, because Israel was God's chosen people. Well, that went to their head in a really bad way. They weren't God's chosen people just because he loved them more than the rest of the world. He was the, they were the chosen people to bring the love, the hope, the compassion, the eternal life, and the message of eternal life to the entire world. He chose them to be his mouthpiece to the world. He didn't choose them because he just loves them more than everybody else. He loved everyone And they were their chosen people. He was their chosen people to bring that message to the world. But Jonah's angry. And he's frustrated and he just wants to die because he knows if they repent, 
and God relents that something's going to happen to his own people. So what does Jonah do? I love his, his, he's such a driven, determined prophet. Verse 5, chapter 4. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Isn't that funny? I know that God's compassionate. They said they're relenting. Let me go far away from the city, far enough away so if anything comes down from heaven, like Sodom and Gomorrah, fire, brimstone, all that kind of stuff, I'm way out of the path of the bad stuff, but I can watch. He was ready to watch. Don't we understand that? I mean, come on, let's be honest. I mean, I like little like reels and YouTube clips and everything, and I feel guilty, but I also think it's funny. You know, the, like, you ever see like those fail clips? You know, where like people are like they're walking and they fall over and they you know bang their head or they drop off the side and they land on like a bar or something, and 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 you shouldn't laugh, but it's funny. Like, why do we laugh at people getting hurt? You know, it's kind of demented if you think about it, right? Maybe none of you do that, but I do. I'm just being honest. Those videos crack me up. I'm like, I shouldn't laugh, but that's really hysterical. There's something about the mindset of people that say, if we think someone deserves something, then it's okay for them to get it. And sometimes people are even okay watching to see if they get what they deserve. How many times have you heard people say, I just hope they get what they deserve? That person deserves what they're dealing with right now. The consequence they're walking through, they deserve that. They walk in that sin. They walk in that disobedience. They've disobeyed this and that. They violated the law. They deserve what they get. And here's the thing. We do deserve what we get. That's not an untruth. But the heart of God is not to say to others, you deserve what you get, and he does it with closed fists. He does it with a broken heart. Do you understand the difference? It's kind of like when you have children that need to be disciplined. Discipline and punishment is not the same thing. When you punish someone, you can do it out of anger. You can do it out of loss of control. You know, you see these silly things years ago. Like I had a friend of mine that used to say, you know, like, oh, I'm going to slap that kid. I'm going to slap this. I'm going to do this and that. Well, that's just punishment and that's not control. Discipline is correction under control, but it's also foundationally based out of love. Discipline is different. So when there's a consequence to someone's life, when there's a consequence to someone's behavior and they have to receive what they have to receive, God isn't just punishing people with a closed fist and he's, and he's just angry and he's zapping people. No, there's an element where you get what you deserve, you deserve what you get, but even when the judgment happens, it's from a heart that's breaking for the people that he genuinely cares for and loves. You see the difference? I hope you can see the difference on that. So what happens here? Jonah's up on the top of this hill and he's waiting for all this to happen. He wants to see what happens to the city. It's hot. He's, he's in the sun. God, the scripture says, God makes a vine grow over his head in that day. And he loves that vine. It creates a beautiful shade for him. And then the next day, God sends a worm and the worm eats the vine. And the vine withers and Jonah's back in the sun again. And Jonah gets angry at God, and he gets angry because of the vine is gone. He's so committed and so connected to the vine, and he's angry that the vine is dead. And then God responds to him in Jonah 4, 10 through 11. Look what he says to him. He says, Jonah, you are concerned about a vine that you did not plant or take care of, a vine that grew up on one night 
and died the next. In that city of Nineveh, there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell right from wrong, and many cattle are also there. Do you think I should be concerned about that big city? And that's where the book ends. There's nothing else in Jonah after that, after that verse. It's like a cliffhanger, if you will. And I love that because Jonah authored the book and people could say, did Jonah finally get it? Did he finally come to this understanding that God is a God of compassion? I believe Jonah got it because Jonah wrote it. If he didn't get it, he wouldn't have wrote it. And what I think we're looking at from the outside is a guy who's being very candid about his sinfulness, his anger towards people that deserve judgment and didn't get it, and his anger in his humanness, wanting things for himself more than wanting the will of God around him. And at the end, he still speaks truth, saying, but God still spoke truth and said, if you're that concerned about something you didn't plant, you didn't take care of, it had nothing to do with you at all, and it was here and gone in a day. Why shouldn't I, who breathe life into every one of those people, who made them in the image of God, who loved them, who made a way and will make a way through my son in the New Testament to come to full relationship, why should I not be concerned about the people that I have created in my own image? Jonah, why are you concerned about something that is not made in my image that you have no stake in, and yet you're angry with me for being concerned about 120,000 people who are lost? That hits home in my heart, and I hope it hits home for you. So I just want to say two quick things to you this morning. If you're running from God, he sees you, and he's with you. That's the first thing I want you to hear. If you're running from God, he sees you, and he's with you. What do I mean by that? Psalm 139, 7 through 10 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Here's what Jonah knew and what we need to know this morning as well. You can't really run from God's presence. And he wasn't really trying to run from God's presence. He knew God was with him. He even acknowledges it in Jonah chapter 2 when he's in the belly of the fish. He's like, you're even here now. What he was running from was being obedient. What he was running from was the will of the Father. You can't run from the presence of God. And I want to tell you this morning, whether or not you're a follower in Jesus Christ, whether you've chosen to follow him or you haven't, wherever you go in this life, you cannot escape the presence of God. You can't. You could be in your lowest lows, your darkest darks, the depths. You could be so far from Christianity and the church. It doesn't matter where you go or where it takes you in life. You could be in the deepest, darkest pit of whatever you've been going through in your life. You are not alone. The presence of God goes with you. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He sees you. He sees the hurt. He sees the pain. He sees the discomfort, the discouragement, the weariness. He sees it all, and he is with you. It is so important for us to understand that. That is absolutely 100% true. That is the truth. If you're running from God, and running doesn't necessarily mean that you are intentionally saying no to God. Maybe you are. Or maybe you've just never really thought and contemplated the fact that there's a different way to live. And that involves knowing Jesus Christ. But you've just never really contemplated it, so you're kind of doing your own thing. Well, if that's a situation, that's like Nineveh. It's like you, 
you're lost. You don't know who God is. You're not walking in relationship with God. You're going in a different direction. God still sees you and he still is with you. Don't ever feel like you're alone. Don't ever feel like he will not respond to you in those moments. Here's the beautiful part about that. If you know that he's with you and with you doesn't mean that he's got your back in everything. It just means when you're at a place of despair, when you have no one else to turn to, it's like Peter. When Jesus fed the 5,000 and then Jesus said some crazy stuff like, if you really want to be my followers, you're going to have to eat my, my body and drink my blood. And they all went later and they all took off. And Jesus looked at the disciples and said, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, Lord, where else are we going to go? You alone, you alone hold the words of truth and the words of life. That's what I'm trying to get at. Wherever you go in this life, it doesn't mean God's got your back and he's going to handle everything you're doing. No, it just means when you're at the place, when you think you're utterly alone, no one's paying attention, no one's seeing you, it could only be me who wrestles with this. God is always just a prayer away. He listens, he hears, he responds. If that's you and you're running from him, he sees you and he's with you. And here's a second thing I want you to hear this morning. And I said it earlier, and it's simply this. God is the God of second chances. He's the God of second chances. And you know what I love about that term? Second chances doesn't mean if you screw up once, it's over. I mean, if you screw up twice, it's over. You mess up once, he gives you a second chance. You mess up again, you're on your own. It doesn't work that way. He's a God of second chances. He is a God who is with you, who will speak with you, who will walk in relationship with you if you invite him to transform you and to change the pathway that you're on. It doesn't matter what you bring him that's old. It doesn't matter what you bring him that's sinful. It doesn't matter the actions and the thoughts that you've had over the years or the activity in your life, your past. It doesn't matter. You know what I love about the people you see all through the Old and the New Testament? They had some really bad things in their life, in their past, that did not determine what their identity was in their future. We hold Moses up as this great leader. The Bible says he was the most humble man at that point that walked the face of the earth. You know who else he was? Murderer. He killed somebody. He was angry. He disobeyed God at one point. God punished, gave him a discipline. He couldn't walk into the promised land as a result of that. But Moses, this guy is the most humble man in the world that walked the face of the earth. Murderer. David. King David, three main kings in Israel before the king's kingship split up. Saul, David, and Solomon. David, we love David. Oh, he penned all these psalms. He's beautiful. The music is amazing. All this stuff that he did. He's a man after God's own heart. He was. David was the line that which Jesus would come from. You know what he was? An adulterer. A murderer. He shed blood. Would you recognize him? Would you put him up on a stage on a Sunday morning? We want to thank you know, this murderer for everything that he did and we appreciate you for taking the life of you know, this innocent man and sleeping with his wife and having a baby and you know, think that you're really a role model that we should follow and God bless you. And, Come on, this is crazy, right? But the Bible says he was a man after, own heart, after God's own heart. And here's why. It wasn't the sin that would have disqualified him alone from being in relationship with God. It was his response to his sin. His response to his sin was to come back to God because he knew God was with him. In fact, in Psalm 51, he actually gives a prayer of repentance. It's a beautiful prayer if you've never read it. And one of the things that he says was, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Renew a right spirit in me. Why is he saying that? 
He's saying that because he knows God's presence is with him. And he's saying, because of my failure and my sin, please do not separate me from you. I come to you humbly and I repent and I ask you for forgiveness. We can fast forward and look to the New Testament. We can look at Paul, who was a murderer. Paul called himself the the, the chief of sinners. We could look at some of the people that he called, the disciples that he called. Matthew, a tax collector, ripped off all his own fellow people. Right? And the list goes on and on and on of people who were, their pasts were questionable and shady. Their decisions in their life were self-centered and worldly. But when they encountered God, and in the New Testament when they encountered Jesus, they recognized that their identity was not based on their actions of the past. Their identity would be determined on their choice to follow Christ moving forward. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. Like it's dead. It's no more, guys. It's over. And the new has come. But he's the God of second chances. Look what Peter says in 3.9. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some of you understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What a beautiful verse that Peter speaks about when he talks about the character of God. Why do I share that with you again this morning? Because all the things I just said, do they speak to your heart and do you recognize wherever you are in this life, he sees you and he is with you. You cry out to him, you call to him, you ask him, he will walk alongside you. And this this church is full of people who have been at the bottom of places in their lives and they have no other way to turn, so they turn to Jesus. And guess what? They find something that they never had before. That doesn't mean your problems all go away, but it means there's something that's been missing in our lives that now he plants in our hearts so that we can be forever changed. And what you see moving forward are not perfect people. You see people that understand their need for Jesus and their willingness to seek forgiveness when they offend God. I love the testimony that Deidre gave this morning in the baptistry. Something was missing, and that something was Jesus. That is the story of the gospel. He didn't come to die so that you could pray a prayer and live your life, or I could pray a prayer and live my life. He came to transform us so that we could live a new life, beginning now, that would last for eternity. Our worship team is going to come, and we're going to close in just a few minutes, but I want to leave one more verse for you to think about, actually two. And it's a well-known verse. Many times it gets cut off because we never follow up with the second verse after it. We only talk about the first. But in the Gospel of John, John writes in chapter 3, verse 16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And we know that verse, and many people have heard that verse, but then verse 17 is so powerful when you put them together. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Paul says in Romans, it's the kindness of God that draws us to repentance. The love of God draws us to repentance. Not so that he can squelch our fun, not so he can throw away our life and we can say, well, we have this great thing going on. Jesus is going to wreck the whole thing. Listen, there may be things in your life and my life that need to be wrecked because they don't honor God. You understand? They must need to be wrecked sometimes. But then there are other things that he says, if you let go of those things and you become my student, you become my follower, I will give you so much more than you ever thought you had before. 
and your life will begin to change and you're starting to see some things change and that's why I love baptism Sundays and I love to see that because what we're seeing are the journeys of people in people's lives where they're going from one way of life to another way of life where they're making a public declaration that this is the way I am today this is who I believe in today and I'm excited to see where Jesus is going to take me moving forward they won't have perfect lives If you watch their lives closely enough, I'm sure you'll see things that they probably shouldn't say or do at different times in their life. But now they have Jesus as a Lord and Savior, and he empowers them to live differently. The worship team is going to sing and invite you to sing during this time. And then we're going to ask the prayer people to come up if you would like to be prayed over for anything, whether it's partially partially something in the service that I spoke of, or maybe it's just something that you have on your heart that you want us to pray for but I just want to pray over you as they get ready to lead us in this song. And if you want to sing along, you can. If you want to stand or sit, that's okay. But just use this time to reflect. Ask the Lord to speak to you. God's spirit is looking to speak to each one of us. And if you're open and your heart's open to hear him this morning, he will direct your steps and reveal more of himself to you. So Jesus, we commit this time to you. and We pray in your name that you would continue to open our eyes and our ears to your will in our lives. And that you would transform us from the inside out. In your name.